please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Well, our text this morning is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, starting in verse 15. One of the wonderful things about the songs that we sing here at Del Cerro Baptist Church is, I'm not going to say anything to you in this sermon that you haven't already heard sung and joined with us in singing in the songs. Amen? It's a wonderful truth. You, we hear the word preached, we sing the word together, and our hearts are encouraged. Amen? Let's now hear the word read. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15, going through 21. Paul writes this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Holy Father, Grant this morning that we may engage together in contemplating the mysteries of your heavenly wisdom, the mysteries of your holy scriptures, with ever-increasing devotion for your glory and our edification. Amen. Well, one of the most significant questions, if not the most significant question that it's possible to ask in this life is this, how does a sinful person stand before a holy and righteous God? Or to put it another way, how is someone saved? How how does a person make sure that on the last day as they stand before the judgment seat of God, they will enter into eternal life and not be condemned to an eternal hell? How does a sinner find acceptance from a holy and perfect God. This question is the question that everybody needs the correct answer to, whether you know it or not, because we all will stand before the judgment seat of God on that last day. Now, there are many places in the Bible that address this question, but our text this morning, Galatians 2, is especially focused on this. So let's open up and hear what the Spirit has to say to the church through the Apostle Paul. We're going to start in verse 15. And let me just say as a, as a quick qualification, there are so many central doctrines addressed in this text. We're, 
We're just going to touch on some of them, and there is a lot more to say on all these. So I know I will feel unsatisfied by the limits of what I can say, and you will be happy that I don't preach for two hours. But all that to say, as I was studying this passage, I think, actually I know, I had more notes than I've ever had for any other passage. There's just, it's a treasure trove of gospel truths. So we're just going to taste, just, this is like a Costco sample this morning. Um, and we'll see which, if you get enough of them, are very satisfying, actually, if you didn't know. Um, anyway, see what happens when I go off my notes. As we're turning to Galatians 2, as you're looking at it, let me just really quickly remind you of what we've seen so far in Galatians. As Pastor Rudolph reminded us a couple of weeks ago, when we're trying to understand the Bible, the worst thing you can do is take verses out of context. So let's, the context here is really important to understanding what Paul is doing in this specific passage. So remember, Paul and his church planting team, they had planted the church in Galatia. This church was a church full of both Jews and Gentiles, so ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, who had now both declared their faith in Jesus Christ and had become, together, Christians. Now, this brought with it a whole host of issues that we don't have time to talk about, but this was the, the, the situation here in Galatia. Now, after Paul had left this new baby church, he was maybe there for six months, a year, we don't really know. After he had left, false teachers came into the church. These false teachers were professing Christians who were Jewish, and what they were doing was accusing Paul of abandoning and destroying the Mosaic law. So they came into Galatia and they said, look, Paul, he told you about Jesus. That's good. We also believe in Jesus. But we want you to know that Paul told you that you Jews and Gentiles are now equal in Christ. That's not true. In fact, Gentiles, if you want to be saved, if you want to be justified, is the language of this text, you must become Jewish, essentially. What does that mean? You must be circumcised, you must, must keep the Sabbath, you must keep the food laws. That's what they were teaching. Faith in Jesus was good, but it wasn't enough. Faith plus works of the law. This is how someone will be justified before God. That's the false gospel, or as Paul says, the different gospel, the distorted gospel that these false teachers were preaching. Now, up until this point, chapters one and two, Paul has defended his apostleship. They were accusing him. He wasn't really an apostle. He demonstrated that the gospel that he preached to the Galatians, the gospel of justification by faith alone without works of the law, was the very gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ himself, and it was the same gospel that the apostles had originally taught and were teaching in Jerusalem. So that's what he's been building on now. And here in 2.15, he switches. We're, We're entering into the second half of Galatians. And what he does here is he begins what I like to call his doctrinal assault on the false gospel of these false teachers. Paul just leaves scorch earth after Galatians, so there's no question what he is saying, and especially in this passage. He's going to spend the rest of Galatians essentially giving more details and argument on what he says here in this text. So there's going to be kind of three major sections to the sermon. Uh, First, the doctrine declared, then the doctrine defended, 
and then the doctrine deployed. Okay, it's got all the D's. We're Baptists this morning. Let's go. The doctrine declared. Verse 15, what does Paul say? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay, now immediately this brings up some questions. It's a strange thing to say for our Western eyes. Now, here's the first question we need to ask. Is this section, verses 15 through 21, what Paul is writing to the Galatians, or is this what Paul said to Peter and to the Jews, kind of in the same story as verses 11 through 14? Is he still relaying to the Galatians what he said, or is he writing something new to them? Now, it's debated. We don't really know, and the reason is there's no quotation marks in the original Greek language. But either way, it doesn't make a difference to the point of what he's saying. I think he's probably summarizing what he said to Peter and the Jews on that day. And the reason he's summarizing it is because it's so applicable to the Galatian church. So you you can picture him saying it to these, these Jews who had separated themselves, remember, from their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the Gentiles. What is he saying here, though? Why does he say this? Well, again, remember the story he told in verses 11 through 14. The believing Jews separated themselves away from the believing Gentiles when it came time to eat. Why? Because they had been told that, or they had been acting like Jews were supposed to act under the old covenant, according to the Pharisees and all of this stuff. And what they were saying without saying it is that being Jewish is more holy, more righteous before God than being a Gentile, which was a lie. And so Paul here, he rebukes Peter in in verse 14, and then here he essentially gives his explanation. Why was that so wrong? What is so wrong with Jews living like Jews and Gentiles living like Gentiles? Well, he adopts some of the opponent's language. It's very clear that what the opponents were saying is exactly this. We ourselves are Jews, but we're not like Gentile sinners. Why would we associate with sinners? Those people, okay, so they follow Jesus, but they don't obey the law, which is, that's what sin is, right? Sin is lawlessness. The the Jews were like, this is clear. They're breaking God's law by what? Not keeping Sabbath, not being circumcised, not following the food laws. So Paul is is kind of adopting their language and saying, you're right. You guys are right. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You're right. The covenant people of God, we were born into that covenant. We were, and they were born outside of the covenant as sinful Gentiles. And in the old covenant system, the Old Testament system, there is a difference between those two things. Paul explains this clearly in Ephesians 2, writing to a Gentile church. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 2. Therefore, now again, this is in the past tense, old covenant, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's essentially saying, yeah, you know what? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You guys are right. And and if we were under the old covenant, there's a difference there. There was a distinction between Jew and Gentile. To be Jewish was to be under the covenant. To be a Gentile was not to be under the covenant. He says in other books that 
What advantage is there to being a Jew? Well, in every way. We had the covenants, we had the patriarchs, we had the prophets. Gentiles didn't have that. So in a sense, he's saying, yeah, you guys are right. He's agreeing with them, meeting them on their turf, but secretly, he's going to now just sweep the legs out from under them. Look at verse 16. And this is the main point of this passage and really the main point of Galatians. So he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You're right. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. You can tell he's, he's ushering all of his rhetorical powers. It's like he, he brought them in with verse 15. You guys are right, you guys are right, and just sucker punches them right in the stomach. It's circular. It's repetitive so that it's absolutely clear. I mean, look at the structure of the text. It, it's a big sandwich. He gives the negative in the beginning and at the end and all the positive stuff in the middle. Yet we know that a person, so how are, they, how are we not justified by works of the law in the beginning? How are we justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed, that's faith, we have had faith in Jesus Christ. Why? So that we're justified by faith in Christ. And here's the negative, not by works of the law. Why? Because no one is justified by works of the law. Or literally, he says, no flesh is justified by works of the law. I mean, he just keeps repeating the same thing over and over and over. Could he be any clearer? If you want to be justified... There is only one way, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and not by works of the law. How many different ways does Paul have to say it? Now, there are some big theological words in this text, and I want to make sure that we understand what they mean. Justified. That is a critical word to understand for the, for the Bible, for the Christian life. What does it mean to be justified? Well, first, it's a legal term. So it means to be declared righteous, to be declared not guilty. Now, this is very important. It does not mean to be made righteous, but to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. So think of a courtroom, a judge. A judge doesn't have the ability or the power to make someone not guilty or to make them righteous before the law. They simply have the power to declare them not guilty or declare them righteous before the law. This is a term that even in Jewish thought had to do with judgment day. Again, courtroom, think of this. So those who are justified by God are the ones, the people who are righteous before him and are the ones who enter into glory on the last day. Those who are justified are those who are saved. Those who are justified are those who will inherit eternal life. So negative and positive are laid out in this passage. We've seen negative, how one is not justified and positive, how a person is justified. So let's look a little bit more closely at those. The negative, Paul says it three different ways, not justified by works of the law, not by works of the law. And then he's like, okay, if you don't get that, let me flip it. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, literally no flesh. Could he be any clearer, any more emphatic? Pursuing obedience to the law will not result in your justification. It will not result in a right standing before God. There's no wiggle room in this verse. 
Paul is intense about it so that you can't get around it. If you want to be justified, if you want to stand before God, blameless and holy, it is not by obeying the law. What does this mean, though? Works of the law. Well, specifically here in the context, it's obedience to the Mosaic law, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, all that stuff. Now, Paul goes into a lot more detail later. There's a lot of questions about the Christian life and the law, and he, he, we're going to talk about that in Galatians 3 and other texts. But let me just give you a little preview about this. Why? Why can a person not be justified before God by obeying his law? Just brings up the question, well, then what, why did God give the law if it's not a way to be righteous before him? I mean, wasn't that what he did for Israel? He gave them the law so that they could be righteous before him? No, no. And Paul, again, will make this very clear later. God gave the law to point the Israelites and everyone else to Messiah Jesus when he would come. The law paved the way for the coming of Messiah. It showed us our need and how short we all fall and Christ came and fulfilled it. The law, obedience to the law, righteousness for the law would require personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience, as one author writes. As Paul says here, no flesh is capable of that. So brothers and sisters, the the law was never meant for justification. Then or now, in the old covenant or the new, the law is like a compass, okay? So it can show you the right way to go, But it contains no power to get you there. Why? Again, it was never meant to. This is the reality. And and here's what Paul does here in verse uh, 16 at the very, that last phrase, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's quoting Psalm 43, verse 2. And this is, again, we read it earlier. Here's what it says. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Okay, no one means no one, no flesh. There is no human being that if God enters into judgment with them, they will come out ahead. David is clear. And again, this isn't just a New Testament reality. This is, this is a law-abiding Jew saying this. God, please don't enter in judgment with me because if you do, I will not be found righteous. No one will be found righteous. There was never any hope for justification to be found in the works of the law. No Jew or Gentile was ever justified. None of them ever found righteousness in the law. Paul deals with this question also later. Now, does that mean that the law is bad? Absolutely not. The law is good. God gave us the law. It's good. It's righteous and holy. But it was never a means for justification. That is the negative argument. And by the way, if you've ever thought of David, King David, and the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart, and you've thought, uh, I've read the stories of some of the things he did. Those are pretty horrible. And the fact is, yes, that's true. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Because he understood this. He did not insist on his own righteousness, but cast himself upon the mercy of God. So that's the negative argument. Now Paul gives the positive in our little sandwich here. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith 
in Christ. Again, look at the emphasis. He says this one three different ways. To make sure the Galatians understand and that we understand. The only way to be justified is by faith alone in Christ alone. Our faith, our trust, our belief in Jesus Christ is the means by which we receive this justification that we need. It's the means by which we receive justification from God. That makes us ask the question, what is faith? What is faith in Jesus Christ? If I need that for justification, well, you better tell me what that is. Faith contains three things. This is his, Christians have talked about this for, for millennia. Faith contains three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So knowledge, okay, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, first, you have to know who Jesus is to believe in him. You must know what he has done. So knowledge, you know about Jesus in the gospel. Assent, you must agree with Christ's message in the gospel. You know these things. You know that Jesus is Lord. You know that he is Messiah. You know all the things we have confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And you say, I agree with that. And then, trust. Trust. This is what David is doing. You cast yourself upon the mercy of God for salvation. All of your hope, or to put it in gambling terms, all, you're going all in on Jesus Christ for your hope for salvation, for justification, for all things. You believe that Jesus, not just, yeah, Jesus died. That's, I believe that Jesus died. That's knowledge. I agree that he could save people. That's assent. Faith is what Paul does here. I believe that Jesus died and has forgiven me because I'm trusting in him. The cry of the believing heart is what we see Jesus tell us in one of the parables. Lord, Jesus, have mercy upon me a sinner. To have faith in Christ is to rest in him, to believe in him, and to receive him in all of his glory as Savior and Lord. One image that has been helpful in this is, is think, of, think of a chair, right? Knowledge is, I know that this is a chair. Imagine there's a chair right here. Ascent is, I agree that if I sat in that chair, it would hold me. Trust is, sitting down in the chair. All three are essential to faith. You can't believe in something you don't know about. You can't assent to something you don't know about. But knowledge and assent are not enough. All of the historic confessions and catechisms attest to this as well. Faith. Faith in Christ is how we receive justification. So would you be justified by God? Would you be declared righteous before him? You must trust in Jesus Christ. You must believe in him. You must cast yourself upon God's mercy in Christ as your hope for salvation, forsaking any pursuit of your own righteousness by obedience to the law. And lest we even possibly construe, because human beings were really good at making everything into some form of law obedience, lest we think that faith is some sort of work we have to do, Paul says in Ephesians that faith itself is a gift from God. God knows this and he says, so that you cannot boast because I know you would if it wasn't. Salvation is all of grace. It's all a gift. 
dependent upon nothing within us, no merit of our own, no worthiness of our own. Memorize the words to the song we sang, not in me. There's, there's nothing within us that causes God to save us. Even the faith that attaches us to Jesus Christ is a gift from God, given to us by the Spirit. But this does bring up a question. What about that verse in James? Does James say the opposite of Paul? Now, I'm not going to re-preach Dustin's sermon. Go listen to it. He did a wonderful job, but it's so seemingly on the surface contradictory to this, so I want to just quickly address it. James 2.24, James writes this. Listen to how different this sounds when you take it out of context. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, right? Now, again, you can't take verses out of context. If you've ever talked with people that are, you know, in a, in a cult, that is what they do. And that is how they will try to trick you that the Bible teaches what they want to say. Don't ever play that game. Read it in context. Now, again, out of context, it seems like a flat contradiction that's unsolvable. How could we figure this out? But in context, it makes perfect sense. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about justification, how we're made right before God. What is James talking about? He's not talking about that. His subject is false professors, people who say they have faith, but in reality, they don't have faith. People who say they have faith, but they only have knowledge. They only have assent, but they're not sitting in the chair, so to speak. They're not trusting in Jesus Christ. How does James know that they're not trusting in Jesus Christ? Because he can see it in their life by the way they are living. That's what James is talking about. And James looks at that kind of faith and says, yeah, even the demons have that kind of faith. Nice try. The type of faith that James is talking about is a false faith, a a useless faith. One, and the question that James is answering is, can that type, he says that in the first verse, can that type of faith save? And he says, absolutely not. Because it is not the type of faith that apprehends, that receives Jesus Christ. It is simply the type of faith that looks and Jesus says, yeah, I agree with that. That's not saving faith. So James says, the type of faith that saves is the kind that results in good works. That's why he gives Abraham as an example. It's why he gives Rahab as an example. They said they believed in God and then we saw it by how they lived their life demonstrated that their faith is true and genuine. True faith demonstrates itself in good works. Paul doesn't disagree with that. And we're going to see he says the same thing in this very text. Paul's going to tell us later that the whole reason that once you apprehend Christ by faith and are justified, what does that lead to? Obedience. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying. So Paul and James are not saying two different things. They're using different language. They're saying the same thing. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone declared. Okay, so that's Paul's kind of thesis statement in Galatians. Now he's going to defend this idea. He's going to answer some kind of natural objections that a Jewish believer might have. Look what he says in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now, this is a strange sentence. 
what, what is Paul, what's Paul getting at here? Now, to understand, we've got to think, again, think of the Jewish context he's talking to here. Remember, to be Jewish during this time was unbreakably tied with observing the law, circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. If you did not do those things, you were not a Jew. And part of that, too, was staying away from Gentile sinners. Uh, we saw that in the previous text. Paul says, okay, justification doesn't come by those things, but by faith in Christ. So he's literally telling them, you are not righteous before God by your obedience to the law. It's only about faith in Christ. Well, the natural question for the Jew then is, okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. If to be justified, to be righteous before God, we have to forsake the law, doesn't that make us sinners? So you're telling me to not obey the food laws. Again, think of the context. You're telling me not to obey the food laws, to associate myself with Gentile sinners, and that's the fruit of righteousness? This doesn't make any sense, Paul. In fact, they were thinking, this makes Christ a promoter of sin. You're, you're telling us to leave the law behind? Paul, don't you know that, that sin is lawlessness? If we leave the law behind, then, then we're, gonna, we're sinners. We'll be found to be sinners. In the same group with Gentiles. That was unthinkable to a Jewish mind. And if everyone is forsaking the law to embrace Christ by faith, then again, Christ is promoting sin. Paul's response, the strongest way he can say this in Greek, certainly not. Another way you could translate that is God forbid. Or in Romans it's translated, may it never be. Christ is not a promoter of sin. But watch how Paul turns the tables again on them right here. He says this, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor. Paul turns the tables. Again, he's really good at that. He's saying, it's not those who forsake the law as a means of righteousness that are sinners, but actually the ones who refuse to let go of it as a means of righteousness that are proved to be transgressors of the law. See what he's saying? He's saying, it's the people that are claiming that Gentiles must observe the Mosaic law for justification that are sinning against God. Why? Because they are attempting to rebuild what God, through Paul's mouth, was tearing down. The dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles. The law as a means of righteousness. They are attempting to go back to the old covenant, even though the new covenant has come in Christ Jesus. And my guess is that Paul uses this language here in verse 18, this, this rebuilding and tearing down, because his opponents in Galatia were saying, Paul is tearing down the Mosaic law. Don't listen to what he has to say. And Paul is essentially saying, oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. Not just the law in general, but the law as a means of righteousness. He says, I will tear that down every day. Absolutely. And he says, in fact, if you or if I tried to rebuild that, rebuild and go back to the law as a way of righteousness, that just proves that we're sinners. That proves someone to be sinful. Similar to what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he says, I, for, I counted all of this righteousness that I had stored up in, in according to my own standards by doing all the Jewish stuff. What does he say? I count it as rubbish, garbage. Why? So that I could pursue the righteousness that is found by faith in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. 
You can't have both. You can't have both. And he's, he's basically telling the Galatians, you need to choose. You can choose righteousness by law obedience and you will be condemned as a sinner or you can choose righteousness by faith in Christ and you will be justified. He says, he's saying, you are the ones that are going against God's will. If you attempt to earn justification by obedience, by law, you condemn yourself. But if you forsake your own attempts at earning justification and cling to Christ by faith, you receive justification as a gift from God because it is found in Jesus Christ. We will see that in the next verse. But, but then what, Paul? What about all the condemnations in the law? Right? I mean, the law, if you read the law, there's all these condemnations. So you're, you can ima- just imagine a Jewish person trying to understand this. So you're saying righteousness not by law, but in faith in Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't obey some, the law, but then we'll be sinners. But then the law says to obey it. So Paul, what is going on here? What is my relationship to the law now, Paul? Help me out. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What? Paul's still clearly alive. (laughs) If he's writing this, what do you mean you died to the law? He explains in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, there's flesh language again, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now in this sentence, this one sentence, lies an eternity of theology and gospel truth that we're only going to touch on again here. Look at what Paul is saying, and don't, don't miss this, for this is the heart of the gospel. Paul, speaking in first person, something he doesn't do very often, but these statements are true for every Christian, every follower of, every follower of Christ. Why? You have to think of the storyline of Scripture. God created man in the garden, and he made a covenant with him. Covenant that was conditioned upon obedience. If you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will surely die. But Adam, our forefather, our representative, rebelled against God. He sinned. He fell And by doing that, because he was our representative, plunged the entire human race into sin. Romans 5 teaches this clearly. All of us now are corrupted by sin. The human nature is corrupted. Our wills are embondaged, enslaved to sin. David says in Psalm 139, I was born in iniquity. That is a great phrase. That is what the human condition is. That is why we cannot obey the law. We, we cannot. All of our attempts at law obedience are tainted with sin and transgression. All of our attempts to impress God with obeying the law just make the situation worse. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 8 says that the mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. This is what we are doing, attempting to do, when we try to earn God's favor by obedience. The prophet Isaiah uses a very stark image, 
saying that all of our attempts to impress God by obeying laws and earn righteousness are like a pile of menstrual rags. Again, because it's all tainted with sin. Because the fall of Adam, we're born as covenant breakers and live as covenant breakers, a people in rebellion against God, dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, children of disobedience. But Christ came. But Christ came. Paul says in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the reason it says sons and not sons and daughters is because in that culture, the sons were the ones who received the inheritance. So it's not some weird sexist thing. What he's saying is all of us, male and female, are receiving a full inheritance as if we were all sons. God in human flesh without the stain of original sin, lived a life of obedience, Jesus Christ, perfectly, personally, perpetually, obeying the law, all the things that we could not do. As the true and better Adam, he fulfilled the conditions of the covenant made with the human race in Adam. But not only that, he was sinless. And he substituted himself for us on the cross. He bore the penalty for Adam's sin and for our sin by dying on the cross. Paul says later he bore the curse of the law on our behalf. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by doing this, he freed his people forever from the curse and condemnation of the law and opened up the way to eternal life. That's why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. Adam was our representative, but by faith, Christ becomes our representative. And when you place your faith in Christ, you are united to him, united to him, Actually, really, not theoretically and abstractly. Abstract, I don't know. You know what I'm saying. Abstractly, that's the word. Okay. You are united to him. Like, really, this isn't just theological jargon. We've been united to Christ by faith. One flesh. That's why the Bible uses the marriage metaphor of Christ and the church. We are in him. That's Paul's most common phrase in the entire New Testament. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because we are in him by faith. When the Holy Spirit regenerated your hearts, gave you faith, and you believed in Jesus, you became one with him and he with you. You were crucified with Christ and now he lives in you. So that now, brothers and sisters, all of his blessings are yours. His inheritance is yours. By faith, we have received, and here's justification, even the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. So why can't the law condemn you anymore if your faith is in Christ? Paul gives us the answer. You're dead to it. As far as the law is concerned, you're dead. Can't condemn a dead man. You died when Christ Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And you rose again when he was risen again. And as far as as the law is concerned, it has no power 
to condemn you. We saw that in Romans chapter 8. Now, what does that knowledge that we are free from condemnation produce? What does that do? Because this is always the pushback on Paul's gospel. Does it produce sin and lawlessness since we can no longer be condemned? No. The exact opposite. Look at what Paul says. It's because he has died to the law that now he can actually live to God. In other words, Christ had freed us from the law so that now by faith we actually can fulfill that very law since no longer are we pursuing it for righteousness. We have righteousness in Christ. Now we can live in freedom. And by doing that, we can fulfill the law. The law hasn't changed. It was the same. It's the same then. It's the same now. A compass could show us the way to go, but we have changed. We have changed. We are freed from its condemnation. We possess the righteousness of Christ. So now we're not trying to earn God's God's favor by obeying him, but having God's favor in Christ Jesus out of gratitude, with hearts filled with joy, we can obey God's wonderful and good laws. Now the sails of our boat are filled with the Holy Spirit so that now the law can guide us and we can joyfully obey God. Again, hearts filled with gratitude. So, should Christians live in obedience? Absolutely, they will. That's what James's point was. They absolutely will. Must we live in obedience to earn justification? Absolutely not. Those who are in Christ Jesus by faith have experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus and now that love overflows out of them in their life. And what is the summary of the law? Love God and love your neighbor. We have to experience the love of God first before we can ever live according to the law. We obey because we have been justified. We do not obey in order to be justified. Our good works do not play a part in our justification. The only way to receive justification is by faith alone. And once you understand that, once your faith is in Christ and you are resting from trying to impress God with your good works, then you can love your neighbor. Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So go love them. And just in case we missed it, Paul summarizes with a very striking statement in verse 21. Listen listen to what he says. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's that's the, the kill strike right there. If you trust in obedience to the law for righteousness, even if you say, no, I'm trusting Jesus too, but also the law, he says, you've rejected Christ. I don't care what you say, you've rejected Christ. You see his logic? If we were able to earn justification by our obedience, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Jesus died for no purpose. And he'll say this many other times in Galatians. He says, and if you try to earn your salvation, you're cut off from Christ. You've fallen from grace. So to try and earn justification by obedience to the law, now that Christ has come, is to reject Jesus and to reject all that he has done. It is to nullify the grace of God. It is to say to God, essentially, I do not find your grace necessary. In fact, I find it invalid. I'll be fine on my own. Thank you very much. It's blasphemy, brothers and sisters. 
the righteousness that we need before God does not come from us. It's not to be found inside of us somewhere. We need what the reformers called an alien righteousness, one that comes from outside of us in Jesus Christ. It needs to be given to us, reckoned to us, credited to us. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself in order to stand before God and not be condemned. And the good news of the gospel is that by faith, we can have that in Christ Jesus because we are united to him, one with him. His righteousness is our righteousness. So by faith, we can be justified. And all of this, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it is a gift of God's grace that we have done nothing and can do nothing to earn. And in fact, the flip side of this is, if you try to earn it, the only thing you'll earn is condemnation. That is the good news of the gospel. And I pray that it is a balm to your weary soul. We can rest from our works in regards to our justification. We have justification by faith in Christ. So just a couple of thoughts as we close. So let's deploy this doctrine, so to speak. Number one, think often of your union with Christ. Think often of your union with Christ. This doctrine that we are united with Christ, union with Christ, is all over the New Testament. It is the basis of our justification, sanctification, and our glorification. It's, it's, the, it's the basis of everything that we have in the Christian life and everything that we do. And everything, yeah, that's what I was saying. We were created in Christ, Paul says. We were chosen in Christ. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were resurrected with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that where he is, we are too. These are present realities, brothers and sisters. Why? Because we are one with Christ. And not only that, not only are we one with Christ, but it's a two-way street. Now he is in us by his spirit, working within us, transforming us to make us more like him. That's sanctification. Justification, we are declared righteous. In sanctification, he begins to make us righteous. We cannot mix those two things up. This is why it's the very first words in the mission statement of our church. In union with Christ. We exist to glorify God by living new creation lives and making disciples. Now, you could put that sentence in a lot of different orders and it would still be just fine. But in union with Christ is first. Why? That's the most important thing. If we try to start anywhere else, we're going to get all messed up. We don't make disciples so that Jesus will love us. We don't try to glorify God so that Jesus will love us. No. By faith, we're united with Christ. And so now, out of gratitude, we live and obey him. Amen? Think often on your union with Christ. And number two, be assured of your justification in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. Believe the gospel. Believe that it is as good as the scriptures say it is. Here's the thing. We're trusting in Christ by faith. We know that. It's like Christianity 101, but it's never, we're never meant to move beyond that. We, we need the gospel constantly. Believe it. 
because we're constantly assailed by doubts of our own soul and from the enemy. I know that some of you are trusting in Christ. Your your faith is him. You're seeking to please him and live in obedience. And yet you're constantly worried that you're not doing enough. You're constantly worried that maybe you're not really saved because you, you sinned this one time or you're struggling with this issue, constantly plagued with doubts. You're thinking of the Christian life completely backwards, brothers and sisters, if that's you. You're trying to obey your way into joy rather than joying your way into obeying. You're trying to work your way into the freedom of Christ rather than embracing the freedom of Christ and living out of that. We don't earn God's grace by obedience. Grace is what fuels our obedience. And getting this messed up, I mean, nothing makes Satan happier. What does the Bible call him? The accuser of the brethren. So that voice you have that's constantly accusing you, you're not good enough, you're probably not saved, look at this sin you have, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's Satan himself. How do you know the difference? Does it lead you back to Christ or does it lead you to run away from God? The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin and he will lead you to Christ. Satan will assail you, cause you to doubt yourself, cause you not to doubt yourself, cause you to doubt Christ. Maybe he's not as good as the Bible says. But here's the funny thing about Satan's accusations. They're usually true. They're always true, right? But we've received justification. Not because we didn't sin, but because of faith in Christ. So when you are assailed with doubts of God's love towards you, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your obedience for hope. Look to Christ. He's where your justification comes from. He is your hope. He is your savior. Only in him will you find solace in times of doubt. What does this look like? Listen to the counsel of Martin Luther on this topic. He was assailed by these doubts all the time, and he has a lot of wisdom on this. He says this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you probably know this experience, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's union with Christ. Go to your union with Christ when you have doubts, not to your performance. Martin Luther said this, when Satan tells me that I am a sinner, he comforts me immensely, for Christ died to save sinners. Amen. He said this, the sin, and this one, this one, this one is worth remembering. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. Let me read that again. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. That is the lie of the serpent. And if you believe that, and we're all tempted to believe that, so remember this, it will shipwreck your faith because you will go right back to trying to obey to earn God's favor and you're never going to do it. You're always going to fail. Go to Christ. Be reminded of your union with him, of your justification in him. These are the words of a heart clinging to Christ, a faith that finds no confidence in its own righteousness but finds eternal confidence in Christ's righteousness. And I know because I am like you, 
that some of you are sitting here and even then you're still having those, those yeah, but I know, but I, yeah, but I, but I did this thing and I'm struggling with this and I know, yeah, I can't, uh, that's pride. That's self-righteousness. That's unbelief. Look at that and call it what it is, sin, and kill it. It's doubting the effectiveness of Christ and his sacrifice, doubting the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit's work, doubting the goodness and mercy of God. It's a damnable lie from hell. Our failures and sins should push us towards Christ and his grace, not cause us to doubt our salvation. So if you're going down that path in your mind today or later or whenever, Flee to Christ. In him, you will find justification. You will find grace to help in your time of need. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You can see where Luther is getting his language. Christian, God has given you his son. God has justified you. God is for you. Christ Jesus himself is interceding for you. He is praying for you. There is no being in all the universe that can charge you with any sin that will condemn you. There is nothing that can condemn you. Romans 8, 1, again, there is therefore, here's union with Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. You can go looking for condemnation all you want. There is none in Christ Jesus. By faith, you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ himself. By faith, you are in him and you will never be removed. So take comfort, take joy in your salvation, and most of all, in your Savior, Christian. Take heart in the gospel of Christ. Be comforted by the love of God, and out of that love, out of that gratitude, out of the joy that is in justification by faith alone, live to God. Live in grace-fueled, joyful obedience to your king. Live, as Paul did, by faith in the Son of God, knowing that he loved you. He gave himself for you. And when you stumble, when you sin, as you will, remember this, for the saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,